Good morning once again. Take open your hymnal and just I just want to go back to hymn number two there before we go into our text this morning. Our text will be from Psalm 119. One of the things we're going to talk about this morning is the importance of knowing the gospel. And I think everyone here that certainly is saved, we understand the gospel, but um, the gospel is so much deeper than just Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I I accepted him as Lord and Savior of my life and et cetera, et cetera. That is the gospel, and yet it's just scratching the surface. The writer, Robert Robinson, I'm not sure who Robert Robinson is, but the writer, obviously, of Come Thou Fount understood this. Oh, to grace, verse 3, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. We have such a beautiful picture there because we go from, we go from slaves of sin to slaves of righteousness, and we go from debt. We have a debt. There's, there's three things in Scripture. Um, R.C. Sproul talks about this. There's three things in Scripture that you can look at to see uh, where, how depraved we are. One, we are, we are in debt. Our sin puts us in debt. Our sin makes us a criminal. So our sin makes us, it, it puts us in debt. Our sin makes us a criminal, and my mind's giving a blank. I can't think of the third one. But we have different facets of how depraved we actually are in Scripture. And we move from a slave to sin and to a slave to righteousness. And this is a beautiful picture here of moving from debt to, and our sin causes us to be in debt to needing someone to pay our debts, which Christ did on the cross, to now we have this, this proliferation of blessing, of grace poured out upon us. And we're not in debt to it, but what a beautiful picture there of God just continues to bestow this wonderful amount of grace upon us, this gospel that we've all prescribed to. Daily I'm constrained to be, let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wondering heart to thee. God's goodness, his love for us, his righteousness has been atoned for. It's not poured out upon us anymore. So all that he has for us is love and goodness. And he puts us through difficult times out of that love and goodness to draw us to himself that we might be bound closer. We see that in the parable that Christ told of the prodigal son. The father waiting, waiting to run and put his arms. Even before the son asked for forgiveness, there's this fatherly desire to run and put his arms and and give love, which Christ does, God does for us all the time as we have a, a tendency to wonder. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Beautiful hymn. Psalm 119. So 2012 is about to close its doors. And we move to 2013. And just 52 weeks. When you're you're small, that seems like eternity. And seemingly, the older I get, that seems less like eternity and more like a millisecond. It goes by so fast. And now we're here at the end of 2012 when we move to 2013. And my prayer has really been, as I've been preparing for this, is what do we have here in just the, the context of Scripture, the, the text that we're in, in Psalm 119, we're preaching expositionally, so we're just flowing from one part of Psalm 118 all the way to the end, and what would God's Word have to tell us right in the middle of Psalm 119 that would set us up for what's coming in 2013? And the more I studied, the more it becomes pretty clear, and I think you'll see that. But 70 through, 73 through 80... I entitled this, God's Faithfulness in Times of Affliction. 
And I think one of the greatest things we can see in 2012 is God's faithfulness. And I think every one of us would have personal testimony to whatever that would be. There's been great pouring out upon my family's life of his faithfulness. Um, praying for years that God would supply a house for me debt-free. He did that this year. That's been a prayer of mine since I was 14. That's a 15-year prayer. That's an amazing outpouring of God's faithfulness. Uh, my son, uh, thinking he had a tumor in his knee and then seeing God's faithfulness in that. Just there are many, many, many instances of God's faithfulness, and we all have those testimonies that we can give. So God's been faithful in 2012, and we know he's going to be faithful in 2013. But the, if you look back in 2012, there was that, that little bit of separation between waiting on God's faithfulness as we're waiting and when he actually manifests that faithfulness. And that separation between those two is, what's the, hard, is the hard part. And how well do we do in those tests? God's asking us to wait on him. And I think one of the things that we can learn from 2012 taking to 2013 is we know there's going to be challenges. And we have a challenge right out the bat, 2013, economically. This nation, you could get a whole lot more money taken out of your check every single month as, as you're working. There could be a lot more going to the government. Well, that's a challenge to test God, to test whether or not we're going to be faithful to God's faithfulness. So that's one of the things that we want to talk about this morning. Here's something we can learn. God is faithful. We know that. But will we be faithful to his faithfulness in 2013? That's something we really got to ask ourselves. We know God's going to be there. But are we going to stay the course in the difficult times to, get, uh, to be able to see his faithfulness? There has been... I mentioned Chandler's knee, and we really haven't said, I really haven't said much about that. And I wanted to give a little testimony this morning to kind of how we walked through that. And that was a challenging time for our family. I, I really wasn't challenged during the actual test. My test was after we realized everything was good. Lucy's test was during the, the actual, is there a tumor in his knee? And then afterwards, she was fine. So it was really nice because I supported her in there, and she supported me once we got out. But there was a, a period of time there. It was a difficult time of wondering, hey, you know, your, your mind goes all over the place. But, you know, first of all, we have a son who has some knee pain. Well, that's no big deal. But then we find out, well, there's something in his knee. Well, that's a little bigger deal. And then we find out it could be a tumor in his knee. And then it could be a cancerous tumor in his knee. And, and so your mind begins to run down these different roads. So, well, okay, could there be an amputation? Could there be cancer throughout his body? Blah, blah, blah. And those are the difficult times, wondering what the Lord is going to do. But one of our prayer from the very beginning was God can allow us, give us the grace to weather this test well. We wanted to weather it well. We wanted to pass it well. We wanted to, to not fail in our striving to be faithful to his faithfulness. And there's times of waning and waxing in that faithfulness to his faithfulness but this is something that we always draw and we drew a lot of encouragement from y'all and y'all didn't even know it we drew so much encouragement from different people that we could look into this church we'd come into church on sunday and we'd look out into this church and we'd see families that were weathering different storms of different magnitudes and they were weathering them well this church has had a lot of suffering 
We've had cancer go through this church. We've had sickness go through this church. We've had job loss go through this church. And we've, you all have been faithful to God. And we've been able to see that and be encouraged by that. And so in our, in our conversation this morning, as we get into the word, this is something that I think is vital. Because here in Psalms 119, 73 through 80, you have a, a, an individual, the psalmist, who loves God in his earnest plea in this portion of Scripture is, God, would you allow me to be a faithful testimony so that the body of Christ might be encouraged? And we would walk into Sunday and we'd see people that we knew were suffering and we know the public perception of how well they're suffering in public is not what's going on at home. We know this. We all know this. We know, oh, they just look like they got it all together. And we know they're going home and there's tears and there's wondering and there's strivings. But it's that fight at home when no one's watching in that moment of affliction that makes the difference to how you carry out your testimony in public. Because you can know when someone is just putting on a facade and they're just kind of going through the motions. Oh, yes, Jesus is with me. Ah, blah, blah. And you're going... Stop giving me the line. And then you can also hear this, another person say the exact same thing. And it just it's coming from within their soul. Because in that striving at home to, to be faithful to God's faithfulness in their times of affliction, that's carried into the public. And you can find strength. So here's this psalmist, 73 through 80, really seeking, Lord... Will I have a God-glorifying testimony underneath affliction that the body of Christ might be encouraged? Wrestling with that um, affliction is fine. That wrestling is natural. And the, but the wrestling is the important part. And there's a lot of people in our church that wrestling, and they're wrestling well. So I commend you for that. And I, and I encourage you to continue to do that in 2013. There's going to be, there's going to be difficulties that we don't even know are coming. And we don't have a doomsday uh, mode in our mind there. We don't look ahead and say, oh, it's just going to get worse. That's not the point at all. But we can know, we have hope that Christ, and we know God is going to be with us. We have that hope. And I, I just encourage you to continue to fight well as we go into 2013. And I really want to, and I desire that God's word this morning would be a recalibration. Look at, look at verse 80 with me. I'm going to skip ahead of myself and then come back. But look at verse 80 with me. I'm reading it in the English Standard. If you had the King James, you're going to recognize what I'm about to quote here. But English Standard from verse 80 says, May my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may put, put to shame. King James Version says, May my heart be sound. And I love that. Is your heart sound? And that, I think, would be uh, the question we would take from here this morning is, is your heart sound in the midst of difficulty? Whatever the difficulty is, if it's relationship, if it's marriage, if it's child rearing, if it's your job, if it's financial, whatever that difficulty is, health, uh, fitness, wellness, whatever it is, is your heart sound in the midst of that? I love this, that, uh, that word right there. Stephen Hopkins Stephen Hopkins was one of the two delegates that signed the Declaration of Independence in 1776. And he was out of Rhode Island. And uh, seemingly a man of faith by all the we can study about him. But he had a great quote. Because when he signed the Declaration of Independence, most of the men who signed it were very wealthy men. And they were essentially signing away their lives and their fortunes and their families' lives and fortunes. They were signing themselves initially to their death. 
that we will die for the sake of our country. But when he signed, he signed with his right hand and his hand was doing this. And so he couldn't write it. And so he had to grab his right hand with his left and sign in a way that would be legible so anybody could understand. He, had a, he, had, he was getting older. He was in his 70s. And so he had a great tremor and he had some palsy and some difficulty. But as he signed, he turned to the men and said, my hand shakes, but my heart is sound. And that's, that's, that's the picture that we have here of in the midst of affliction, in the midst of difficulty, there's times when we're shaking and there's times when it's tough, but is, our, is your heart sound? Is your heart ready to weather whatever the Lord may have for us in 2013? So I'm going to ask, let's go before the Lord again in prayer and ask once again His blessing upon this time as we get into the Word. Father, we, we desire sound hearts. Hearts that are under firm conviction firm resolve as to our calling and as to your greatness and to your faithfulness and to your mercy and to your grace and to your love in our lives. Oh, Father, we ask now that as we come into your word that you would speak, oh, Lord, and renew our minds, renew our hearts and strengthen us for 2013. May this be a a recalibration, a, a foundational time in the word together as we look in and and seek as a body to gain insight that you would uh, strengthen us as a group strengthen us as individuals strengthen us as families strengthen us as the body of christ to be able to take on 2013 with a a soundness of heart a soundness of mind knowing the truth above all else amidst in the midst of affliction and difficulty knowing the truth and holding firm to that. We thank you and praise you for this day. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So let me read this portion of Scripture once more. Psalm 119, 73 through 80. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous And that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Okay, so we're going to break this prayer down here. And this first three verses are really setting up the prayer. And when we go to the Lord in prayer, we oftentimes proclaim things. Lord, you are faithful. Lord, you are good. And then there's a time when we get into requests. Lord, would you please? Lord, let. Lord, may you. We're asking the Lord for things. And this is exactly the way the psalmist does it. Verse 3, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that faithfulness you have afflicted me. There's your first three verses that's kind of proclaiming some truth there, which we'll study. And then he gets into these next five verses that are requests, 76 through 80. Let, request number one, your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. And then he ends with, may my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. First truth that he comes out of the gate with that I think is foundational to how we take on times of affliction, whatever they may be, small or great, is in verse 73. Your hands have made and fashioned me. 
This is not some concept, some mythical concept that the God of the universe actually created and fashioned you. This is reality. The God of the universe made and fashioned you. Louis Giglio in his uh, DVD series, How Great Is Our God, he has a great little part in there where he talks about the human eye. And the human eye is the most complex system that the human mind can, can even know. And we can't even comprehend it. But at about five months when you're in the womb and God is, is literally forming you and creating you and DNA is being written and all of these different things, at five months old, you have one, you have one million nerve endings that go from your, your eye and they go back to your nerve center at the back of your brain. And they all, one million nerve endings has to connect with one million nerve endings and that has to happen perfectly or you don't have sight. I mean, think of that. One million on one million and they all have to connect perfectly. Otherwise, you don't have sight. Now, if you don't, if that doesn't blow your mind at the, the God that has created and fashioned you. So the very idea that you can see me this morning is because God allowed one million to hit one million. Otherwise, you don't see me this morning. And, and it hit, but at that very moment that those one million hit, you didn't have sight. Because at that moment, your eyelids got formed and you couldn't see. Because your eyes couldn't handle that yet. And about the sixth month, you have a little cutter that comes out. And have you ever noticed? Nobody has crooked eyelids. Oh, You've got a little valley and peak there. No, nobody has this through their eyelids. They have a perfectly straight line. That's because a little cutter comes out and makes it perfectly straight and slices it open. At six months, you can see. You can see light in the womb. And that's incredible that the God of the universe made and fashioned you. Why is that so foundational to how you... And go through life. Because if you can grasp that. That if he made you to actually be able to see. And breathe. And talk. And think. And if he, if he did that. And he also controls everything else. What is there to worry about? Really? He's controlling everything. And he actually formed you. You have no existence without him. This is not that difficult. And yet it is difficult, isn't it? If you go to, uh, I subscribe to different blogs, and one of them is a counseling blog, How to Counsel. And this guy is, he's uh, involved with NANC, and he goes around the nation and does different counseling. But on his blog, he has resource pages where you can go and find resources on depression, or you can go find resources on anger, or you can go find resources on all these different things. Number one, and this is not just him, this would be across the board, number one searched for item Every in 2012, and it happens every year, and these are why all the books are written about it, is on anxiety, fear, and terror. We struggle with it so much. Anxious about the future. And Scripture says, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. But we can't seem to bang it through our minds that even though God has given me an unbelievably complex body, it's difficult because we walk by faith and we don't walk by sight. It would be wonderful if we could walk by sight and not by faith. But that's not the way it works. So that's what makes it tough. And yet that's, this is what we've got to understand. You wake up in the morning and we must meditate on the creator, the sustainer, who he is and what he's actually done. Because you don't take a step out of bed that morning. You don't, you don't move a pinky finger. Your eyes don't open. 
without the very fact that he is alive and well and has not only created you, but is sustaining you. Because he draws his finger one millisecond from you and you're gone. Your time's up. God has allowed you to be here. Meditate on that. That's something that should encourage you and that should something, that should something that should give you hope as you enter into the 2013 that no matter what happens, He's created you, He will sustain you, He will hold you together by the power of His hand. We've got to look at Psalm 139. When you talk about God as the Creator, you have to look at Psalm 139. So let's go over there. Psalm 139, verse 13, verse through 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. You are his. There's nothing that can harm you. There's nothing that can happen to you without the almighty, powerful God saying, yes, that is good for him. That is good for her. I will allow that in that person's life because that's, that's good for them. All things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. As I was reading verse 73, I, I wanted to stop at 73. It goes on, the first half there. But one of the things I, I want to challenge us there before we go on in this text of 73 through 80 is, His hands have made and fashioned you for what purpose? Why have you been created and fashioned? We can give the pat answer for God's glory. Yes, you're right. That is why you've been made and fashioned. But we often miss that. And we find ourselves, as we can at times and should do, look back in 2012 and see how we've used our time and what we can do and change for 2013. But has he made you and fashioned you to, for what? Well, how do we normally think God has made and fashioned us? Well, we normally think he's made and fashioned us for my own self-enjoyment. For my own entertainment, for the conquest of the field or sport, for the entertainment of the world, for the money that can be made, for the business ventures that are there. Are anything wrong with those? No, no. But that not, should not be the prevailing theme because that's not why you've been fashioned and created. You've been fashioned and created for his glory and his purpose, not for your purpose. And so what is the dominating use of your time for your own purpose or for his own purpose you may have been called to the business field a wonderful opportunity what dominates that calling the status the money the power the intrigue whatever it is or is it using that field for his purpose whatever it would be why you've been created young men if you're under the age of 20 25 years old it would be you will radically change the next 5 to 10 to 20, the rest of your life, if you can walk into marriage with a vision 
for your life and the purpose of what God has created you to do and be and how, to in, how, you, how, how God has called you to impact the world. Because that, that sheds everything. That, that, that allows you to be about the business of men and not about the business of boys. That sheds, oh, the, I can go over here and just kind of flitter my life away over here. We're going to spend time over here. I'm fine with having friends and stuff. I'm not saying don't be involved in sports, don't be involved in friends. But I'm saying there's, there's a bigger purpose than all these things. And there's nothing that could be greater than a young man that could walk into, into marriage and be able to lead a family because he knows where he's going. And he hasn't gathered all this baggage in his life because of not having a purpose and a vision. You, you, you've got it here. God, you know why God's made and fashioned you. Now seek him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength that you might know where he would call you. Is he calling you to the mission field like Curtis Adams to be a doctor? He knows where he's going. Go find where God wants you to go and go do that. And then you, you don't gather all this, this other junk. And the dads in here would all say amen because they probably went, I didn't do some of those things. And man, I've got some baggage to atone for because of that. You never drop the baggage. You just got to haul it along with you throughout the rest of your life. Your hands have made and fashioned you. Fashioned us. God has given us our lives. But we can't stop there. There's a danger in stopping right there. Because if we just stop with, oh, wow, God is amazing. He's such an unbelievable creator. We get this emotionalism built up, just like we talked about in Matthew 13 a couple weeks ago. We get this emotionalism built up. We get the good seed that falls on rocky soil. Wing! Goes straight up, and then it wilts because there's nothing, there's no purpose for why we're rejoicing in God creating us. That would be the second half of 73. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. So the psalmist is not proclaiming just the fact that God has created him for the pure fact of doing it. He's proclaiming that as an avenue of asking God for something. God, you've created me. Therefore, since you have created me, the only way I can have any wisdom, any insight, any understanding into your word is that you give it to me. Oswald Chambers says this, A man who has not been born, so a man who's not a believer, of the Spirit of God will tell you that the teachings of Jesus are simple. But when you are baptized with the Holy Spirit, you find, in quotes, Psalm 97, 2, clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And you, you know this. The deeper you walk with the Lord, the more complex Scripture is. He gives you truths, and some of them are very simple, but some of them are deep and hard to understand. And this is why we must go to the Lord and ask, Father, you created us. Therefore, the only way I'm going to be able to get anything out of this this morning as I'm in your word is that you give me understanding. So we can't just stop on the fact that God has created us. We've got to move to using that as a springboard for prayer, using that as a springboard to to seek the Lord and asking him to instruct us in righteousness. Psalm 138.8 says, The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. So, Lord, do not forsake the fact that you just created me. Continue the work. Continue to give me the understanding that I need, that I can comprehend what you're trying to tell me in this time of affliction. Move to 74. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. Now, you're in the body of Christ. If you're a believer, you're in the body of Christ, and it's vital that you're in the body of Christ. 
if you were to come to me and say, well, you know, I'm a Christian, and I was to ask you, well, where do you go to church? Well, you know, not really, don't really believe in, uh, I haven't really found a good church, I don't really believe too much in church, you know, I, I kind of have my own thing at home. I'm not going to tell you you're not a Christian, but I am going to highly question your salvation because you're not, you're not taking part in, the, in, in one of the maybe top two or three things that God has ordained as a means of grace. You can't, you can't be in the body and, and be detached over here. You can't be an arm in the body and function 10 feet away. You've got to be connected. And if you're not connected, then you're not part of the body. So there's an intimate need here to be to be a part of the body. And so that's why that's why desiring to have a good testimony to the body is a good thing. It's not for a prideful, may I have a good testimony that everybody could look at me, but you're you're asking for the right reasons that God could would gain glory out of it. But you know if you're in the body, there's going to be other people watching. So there's going to be other people observing, and that's what happens in seventy four here. Those who fear you so other believers shall see me, shall see my testimony and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. And we know this. We know we can gain um, encouragement when we see someone else in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of life, have a joy of the Lord. And it doesn't seem to make any sense why they should have a joy of the Lord, but they do. And us as believers, we know why that joy is there and we're encouraged by it. And as we walk out our lives with in a circle of non-believers, they see something and they don't know what it is. And that, there's that dichotomy and that gives you the opportunity there to be a witness and say, this is why I have hope and joy and peace in the midst of some difficulties. Flip with me to Psalm 35. Twenty-seven, Psalm thirty-five, twenty-seven. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, "Great is the Lord, who delights in the welfare of His servant." You know, when you're going through a time of difficulty, and you bring that before the body for prayer, like we did with Chandler, there's great, great desire to not only weather through the storm well but to see God answer the prayers of his saints that they might be encouraged and be able to say, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. So that's part of the prayer is you're asking the Lord, Lord, help me to get through this. Help me to my faith to be uh, faithful to your faithfulness, but uh, that you, that the people might shout for joy. The people might be encouraged. Some, uh, you don't have to flip with me there, but Ephesians one eighteen. Paul writes the same thing as a prayer to the Ephesians. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And here's the prayer. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So there's the prayer. Is God allow me to uh, be a witness, a, a testimony to the saints around me 
that they might be able to see me and rejoice, knowing that I have hoped in your word. 75, a verse that I'm not sure many people want to read in the time of difficulty, but I think is the, can really be the encouragement. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. If you are a believer and you're going through times of affliction, God is in control of that. He has ordained it. He has allowed it. And he will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you can bear. You can, you can grab hold of that. You can tie yourself to that anchor. That is a truth from Scripture that will not change. But, but to think that somehow that affliction, and we often think this, is, is separate is outside of what God would have for us, that's when it becomes very difficult. Because we're trying to reconcile two things that one's true and one's not. You can't, can't do it. God's in control of that. The psalmist knows. I love how he says, I know. Do you know? Do I know? That God is the one that's allowing this affliction and he actually may be afflicting us because we know in Hebrews 12 that he loves us enough to afflict us and that he's going to be faithful through that. Can we say, like in Lamentations, great is your faithfulness. Can we say like Job, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now your viewpoint of whether or not you see affliction as controlled and in in the context of God's best for you, your viewpoint is going to be made clear by how you respond when circumstances and challenges and afflictions are changing and moving in your life. Because if you have difficulty with those things, then your viewpoint, you may, you may think you know that that affliction, challenges, difficulty, circumstances is under the ruling hand of God. But if you're acting out in a different way, you may have mental belief, but you may not have heart belief. And so you have to go back to Scripture, strengthen yourself in that, and look into Scripture again, and study more, and, and remind your soul of the truth, so that you are able to respond in a way of, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. This is, this is critical this, this right here is critical because you can't move to 76 and 77 until you are under the clear conviction and understanding that God controls these, quote-unquote, bad things in your life. Unless you understand that, it's very, you can't move to 76 and 77 because that's where he begins to ask the Lord. And you don't know what to ask for unless that's the case. But look, let's move to 76 and 77. And, and there's, there's really five requests here. 76 is one, 77, 78, 79, 80. I'm going to lump 76 and 77 together. And there's different directions this could go. But I'm going to go down this path with 76 and 77. So we're going to call these... Four different requests. And this request, number one, is 76 and 77. And the request is, may the gospel of mercy and grace be real. Let me repeat that again. Four requests. First request is 76 and 77. May the gospel of mercy and grace be real. Now, let's delineate here. What is mercy and what is grace? Because we oftentimes interchange the two. Mercy. Mercy is that I do not 
get what I do deserve. Grace is that I do get what I do not deserve. Huge shift. Mercy is that I do not get what I do deserve. So what did you get when Jesus died on the cross? You got mercy. Because you did not get what you did deserve, which is hell, death, separation from Christ, for, from God for eternity. But you also got grace because you did get what you did not deserve. You got his love. You got his favor. You got his blessings. You got his strength. You got all of these other things. We oftentimes pray for grace. But in the context, sometimes we don't pray for mercy. But we should pray for mercy because we're asking God, God, please, I know I deserve this, 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 and this. And yet, please, give me grace instead. Give me what I do not deserve rather than not getting me what I do deserve. Now, it's critical to understand this because this is, this is both 76 and 77. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live. Because if his mercy doesn't come, you don't live. Because you're going to get what you deserve. For your law is my delight. In the time of affliction, in the time of difficulty, the only thing that can be the calibrating factor to your soul is the gospel of mercy and grace. We know the gospel, but does the good news, which is the gospel, comfort your soul? And I don't think it comforts a lot of people's souls because they just say, well, the gospel is Jesus died on the cross for my sins. You're right. But that, that, that is such a shallowest opening of the sliver. The door is barely cracked. I mean, there's just the shallowest, slim bit of light coming through there. It's true. Oh, you're, you're right. But there's so much more. I remember uh, before I got engaged going into jewelry stores and asking the people there to teach me about diamonds. And so they would, you know, lay out the diamond and they'd get you a little scope and they'd tell you this is a D and this is this color and that color. And they, well, when you're looking at it on the especially they put it on white, you're looking at it on a white piece of paper, you're thinking that's a rock and I'm going to pay that much expense for that thing. And then they put it on black and then they put it, and then they give you a scope and then they teach you about it and then you understand the cuts and then you understand the intricacies of it and then you're looking at it under brilliant light and just exploding. Well, when I first looked at it, the thing looked like an expensive piece of rock. And now when I look at it under all these different things, there's so much more to it. And that is exactly the gospel, except it has never-ending facets. It doesn't just have a certain amount of cuts, and that's it. It's never-ending, and the more you look at it, the more it explodes with light, and the bigger and more great and more wonderful and more incredible that it is. But we oftentimes move away from the gospel once we're believers. I'm, I'm done with that. I got Jesus. Now that's what that that should be the that should be the anchor. That's what we should be looking at at all times. C.J. Mahaney has a quote in his little book called The Cross-Centered Life. Never be content with your current grasp of the gospel. The gospel is life-permeating, world-altering, universe-changing. It has more facets than a diamond. Its depths man will never exhaust. Do you meditate on the gospel? Do you realize that mercy and grace go hand in hand? You can't pray that 
unless you believe that, number one, God has created you. Number two, that he's controlling all of those things that are going on around you. There's 73 and verse 75 as well. A lot of people go to, newspapers are a thing of the past. If you hadn't figured that out yet, um, go look in the past literally year or two, all the major news publications that are shutting down or they're going all to digital. People don't go pick up and buy newspapers anymore. It's a losing business. So young men, don't go into newspapers because there's no money there anymore. People don't literally, the majority, it's, it's a losing business. There are certainly people that still get newspapers, but very few people read them. It's just out of habit. They normally go to their digital device, and that's where they read about the news. Well, if you were to go to a news site, any news site, I don't care which it is, or any newspaper, open any of them up, it's all the same. The front lines always say, now it changes, but I can tell you every single time what it is. It's somebody that's done something bad all the time, because that's what makes news. You go to MSNBC, and it probably said Obama won. You go to Fox News, and it probably said Romney lost. It's the same thing. You go to... Every day, there's this person murdered that. Tornado went through here. I mean, it's all these just stuff. And, and you can know what it is every single time. But what do we do? We always read it. This is the, 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 the gospel, which is good news. It has to be read and has to be spoken. Because you don't get news just by living it out. You can't live it out. Last year, God, by God's grace, God, I always liked the quote, and it's, it's blasphemy, is St. Francis of Assisi. Don't preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. It's wrong. It's wrong. You, you can't do that. You can't live the gospel. You can live in light of the gospel, but you can't live the gospel because the gospel is good news. How am I going to live news? I'm going to spin myself like a tornado, and you guys are going to be able to see, oh, hey, there was a tornado that went through Texas. Look, Cody's acting out the gospel. You can't do that. I mean, you, you wouldn't get it. No, I'd have to tell you, hey, guys, there's a tornado that went through the gospel. It went through, the, it went through Texas. You understand? See, I have to tell you the news. Well, it's the same thing. I, can't, I could live in light of the gospel, but eventually I'm going to have to speak the gospel to you. I have to speak it. Well, that's the same way in our lives is we have to we have to continually go to Scripture and read about this good news. It's like every morning you wake up and you have the opportunity in your brain to go to the news sites of your brain. And every day, bold across the middle, middle is is the gospel. But what do we always do? We just go down to the next little news site story here, little news story here, and we miss we miss the big one. And it's huge and it's marvelous and it's got so many facets to it. And we skip it and we go down to the next thing. We don't meditate on that. We don't think, oh, not only has Christ made me, but he saved me. And we study it more and more and more. A great little book on this subject is by Milton Vincent, a gospel primer for Christians learning to see the glory, glories of God's love. And he talks about the gospel in here and preaching the gospel to yourself. One of the interesting things he does is he gives a gospel narrative in the prose version and then a gospel narrative in the poetic version. And let me just read you a little bit of the prose version. And this is something that uh, I would encourage you. Some of the guys in Infire will be memorizing that this this year. But it's just straight gospel. Now, it's, it goes, you'll see very quickly it goes into a lot more. Because if you start with the gospel, you've got to start with who God is. 
My God is immense beyond imagination. He measured the entire universe with merely the span of his hand. He is unimaginably awesome in all of his perfections, absolutely righteous, holy, and just in all of his ways. He has also been unbelievably good and merciful to me as the creator and sustainer of my life. Every breath, every heartbeat, every function of every organ in my body is a gift from him. Every legitimate pleasure I experience is a gift from his loving hand to me. All that I am and all that I have, I owe to him and to his goodness. My life in every way is and will continue to be utterly dependent upon him and whom I live and move and have my being. This wonderful God is the most supremely worthy object of admiration, honor, and delight in all the universe. And he has created me with the intention that I might glorify him by finding my soul's delight in him and by living in joyful obedience to him in all of my ways. This doesn't sound just like Jesus saved me. Yet I could not have failed this great God more miserably than I have. Instead of giving thanks to him and humbly submitting to his rule over my life, I have rebelled against him and have actually sought to exalt myself above him. Going my own way and living according to my own wisdom, I have broken countless times either the letter or the spirit of every one of God's Ten Commandments. Thinking myself to be wise, I have shown myself to be a fool. And because of my arrogance, God has every right to damn me to the everlasting experience of his terrifying wrath in the lake of fire. So as for myself, apart from Christ, I am bound by the guilt of my sins and also bound by the power of sin, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. That is 14 sections of 41 of the gospel. It's immense. It is so wonderful. And if you meditate on it, you see how much more understanding what God has done for you. And now your prayer is different. And now your view of affliction is different. And now there's something that is an anchor there, no matter how uh, windy life can get amidst the difficulty. Go into your hymnal to number 503. Jesus, I am resting, resting. Is this your view of Christ? Is this your view of the gospel? Because there, we have to have a witness. If, if we're not a witness, if we're not a testimony in the midst of affliction as Christians, wrestle. It's the, the, we wrestle hard, but wrestle well. Because we have a rest in Jesus. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Thou hast bid me gaze upon thee, and thy beauty fills my soul. For by thy transforming power thou hast made me whole. Oh, how great thy loving kindness, vaster, broader than the sea. Oh, how marvelous thy goodness, lavished all on me. Yes, I rest in thee, beloved. Know what wealth of grace is thine. Know thy certainty of promise and have made it mine. Simply trusting thee, Lord Jesus, I behold thee as thou art, and thy love so pure, so chainless, changeless, satisfies my heart, satisfies its deepest longings, meets, supplies its every need, compasseth me round with blessings. Thine is love indeed. Ever lift thy face upon me as I work and wait for thee, resting neath thy smile, Lord Jesus, Earth's dark shadows flee. Brightness of my Father's glory. Sunshine of my Father's face. Keep me ever trusting, resting. Fill me with thy grace. That is the gospel. 
That is something that should be the peace in our soul amidst whatever life throws at us in 2013. Now quickly, that was number one. May the gospel of mercy and grace be real. We'll go quickly to the next three. Number two is in 78. And I'm titled this, Prayer that the naysayers be silenced. Prayer that the naysayers be silenced. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. I had difficulty understanding this verse until I began to put myself and think about uh, the shoes in which my parents walked and in which uh, now being in the ministry, I see other people walk. You know, when you're raised in a godly Christian home with godly parents, it has, there's sometimes difficulty um, because you, you, you never really, until you get much older, you never really have any naysayers in your life. You know, you have people encouraging you on. But first-generation homeschoolers, they had, I, I remember my grandparents who were godly people telling my parents, you've got to be kidding me. You're going to have seven. You have, you're pregnant again with your seventh? You're going you're gonna to homeschool your kids? What is that? And there, was, there was naysayers there. This is what the psalmist is praying against. There's, there's naysayers. There's always going to be. And the more we live for the cause of Christ, the greater the dichotomy will be between us and the world, and the stronger will be the yelling, the screaming, the terror against who we are as believers. I was talking to Mr. Welch yesterday. I was going to announce uh, announcements, but January 26th, there's going to be a walk for life in Austin. Well, Mr. Welch was telling me they used to, at Birmingham, they would walk by the abortion clinics in this big giant walk. They would walk by the abortion clinics. And he remembers walking by the abortion clinic and looking up and seeing one of his students on the steps of the abortion clinic just screaming filth at these people who are standing for life. We, we oftentimes don't have that in our lives. But this is what the prayer is, is when you're going through affliction, you're praying, God, may, the, may your grace, may the gospel of mercy and grace be real. But you're also praying, Lord, would you please, please silence? Because I have a heart that is desperately wicked and I have a tendency to get discouraged and disappointed by all this filth that's being lies that are being spit at me. So would you, would you keep them quiet so I can get through this test with, with a good testimony? 79. The third one, so prayer for the naysayers to be silenced. 79 is really the, the flip of that. Let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. Prayer for the godly to stand alongside. Every Titus needs a Timothy. Every Timothy needs a Titus. Every David needs a Jonathan. Every Jonathan needs a David. If you're in the body of Christ, you, you need that those, those close brethren that can walk you through those difficult times. You really do. I, I remember when I was 16, we were in a transition. We moved from Bloomington, Indiana to Dallas, Texas, and there was no friends there. And I remember driving the car from Dallas, from Bloomington, Indiana, Dallas, Texas, praying, God, would you provide a friend? And he did. He provided one friend for the next three years of my life. And that's a guy who was in my wedding and is still a good godly friend of mine today. But you've got, you've got to have somebody to walk through you through those difficult times. And that's what the psalmist is praying for. Lord, raise up the godly, raise up the body of Christ that can stand with me through this time of difficulty. And then 80. 80. May my heart be blameless in your statutes. May my heart be sound in your word that I may, be, that I may not be put to shame. We want a sound heart. Praying for a sound heart. We don't ever want to be hypocrites. 
We, never, we don't ever want to live a life of deceit. We want to live out our lives in a way that can be seen across the world as true and right for the Lord. We don't want to have a life that has got the skeletons in the closet where we're doing our one thing here and then we're going over here and doing something completely different. We want to be able to approach the throne of grace according to Hebrews 12 boldly. You can't approach the throne of grace boldly if you've got sin in your life. And this is what the psalmist is ending this section with is, Lord, I want to live out a godly testimony in the midst of affliction for your glory. So allow nothing, nothing to prohibit me from having that godly testimony and allow nothing to prohibit me from being in the one place that is a peaceful above everything else, which is right before you understanding, understanding what he has done for us. So review 73. We've got to know who God is as our creator, but that should just be something that would spring us into prayer Praying, God, give me understanding in your word today because I'm going through this difficult time and I've got to have your word of truth there with me, guiding me. That we might be able to be a good testimony that the body of Christ might rejoice, 74. That in the midst of this time, I would know that you are controlling and are faithful to me in this time of affliction, 75. And then praying, Lord, may the gospel of mercy and grace be real, 76 and 77. May the naysayers be silenced, 78. 79, may the godly stand alongside me. And the 80, may my heart be sound. So, we have, we have a wonderful opportunity. 2013, you have a fresh start. It's neat how God has given us this. A fresh start into a new year. And there's going to be some challenges. But is your heart sound? Are you ready? Are you ready to take those things on no matter the difficulties, no matter the pressures, no matter the winds? Are you ready because your heart is sound in the understanding of who God is and what he has done for you? And, and because of those things, are you in his word every day seeking to know that more fully and more understand in a greater way all the nuances, all the amazing facets of God's glorious gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we thank you for your word that is true, that is sharp as a two-edged sword, piercing and dividing. And Lord, I, I would pray that your word would have spoken this morning that you would have given me the grace and the mercy to be a mouthpiece, but to be no more than that. And that you would have spoken and you would encourage our hearts. And I pray, Lord, for each, each individual here, each individual believer, young to older, that you would encourage their hearts, strengthen them for what you have to come, Surround them with a strong network, a strong body of believers. Silence the naysayers, Lord. Silence the, the lies that Satan so often bombards us with in the midst of difficulty. And Lord, give them, give them a startling, soul-arresting view of who
who you are and what you've done for them. And may they just be enraptured by your love and by your, your glory. May they be able to enter into that bold, into that throne room each and every day, throughout the day, boldly finding that, that rest, that, that comfort, that peace in the midst of the affliction, whatever it is, whether it's from the outside or from the inside, whether it's from the temptation of the enemy within or from whether it's him working um, through circumstances and people from without, that we would stand well. Lord, I pray for our church. The next time we meet is in a new year. And I pray, Lord, that this church might not be, not, might not be known for, for anything other, anything other than a church that is, that is saturated and enthralled and joyous about who you are and what you've done for us, the gospel, the good news of salvation. And may that, may that be an even greater message, an even broader be seen in, in, in an even broader way by the world around us in 2013, that we might be truly be a city, a light that is set upon a hill, that the, the world may know that here, here these people are pursuing passionately the purpose for which God has for them. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to have been in the Word. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.